The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise and this picture of your return. Would you come for us? Would you raise us to new life in you? And as we await for those days, give, give us a full hope in the resurrection of the dead. We pray this for your honor, and we pray this for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So over the last four weeks, we have been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This incredible chapter, it contains the longest reflection on the resurrection of the dead in the entire New Testament. In this chapter, not only does Paul argue for the cosmic impact of Jesus' resurrection, he talks about the certainty of our own resurrection from the dead when Jesus returns. This is the heart of our hope as followers of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the righteousness counted to us by grace. But the incandescent hope that lights up our lives It's this promise that one day we will rise to new life with Christ, free from sin, free from suffering, free from sorrow, free from death. So today we reach the climax of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul's exuberance just sort of seems to overflow. Taking two Old Testament prophecies, he turns them into a taunt of death. He says, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? What I'd like to do this morning is simply to walk through these final, the final verses of this chapter in order to see how they draw Paul's thoughts on the resurrection to a close. And having done this, we'll then take a step back from the text to reflect on how the hope of resurrection shapes our attitude toward death. So I hope you'll turn to page 962 with me as we pick up at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn there, uh, let me remind you where we are in Paul's argument. So in the first 14 chapters of this letter, Paul deals with a wide range of practical issues from sex to lawsuits to proper behavior during worship. And all of these are important, but he saves the most important for last. It has come to his attention that certain members of the church in Corinth don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They appear to believe in Jesus' resurrection and perhaps some kind of life after death, but they can't muster the faith to believe that they will rise from the dead as well. Paul is confounded by this. And he says to them in verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, We are of all people most to be pitied. 
In other words, if they have no hope for their own resurrection, their faith is basically pointless. Paul then affirms that not not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but that we too will rise on the last day. He explains that our bodies will be transformed and made fit for inhabiting God's eternal kingdom. How this will all happen, he admits, he only understands partially. But he reminds his friends that just because we do not understand something doesn't doesn't mean that it cannot happen. By the time we reach the end of chapter 15, one question still hangs in the air. If Jesus is going to raise the dead and clothe them with new bodies, then what will happen to those who are still alive at that time? And this is what Paul begins to address in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, these bodies that we now inhabit, they aren't suitable for life in the new creation. They are perishable. They degrade over time. They have a use-by date. They can't be retooled with vitamins or rejuvenated by a cocktail of drugs. They need to be fundamentally transformed. And this means that something will have to happen to the bodies of those who are alive when Jesus returns if they're going to be fit for the new creation. So Paul explains this beginning in verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. So three times in this chapter, Paul refers to death as sleep, something that we're gonna return to uh, in a few minutes. And what he's saying here is that Jesus will return while people are living, breathing, and going about their normal business. Not everyone will die, but everyone will be changed. He continues in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So in the ancient world, trumpets were sounded to announce the arrival of a king when he visited a city. And God had promised his people that one day, One day he would send a king to reign over them forever and the trumpets would sound over the city for the last time in order to signal his arrival. The phrase, the last trumpet, it became a shorthand way of reminding God's people that a king was coming who would reign forever. So in Matthew 24, which I read just a moment ago, Jesus told his disciples that he would return one day with his angels And at the sound of the trumpet, he would call his people from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus, Jesus picked up this Old Testament tradition and he turned it into a promise about himself. Paul follows suit. The last trumpet that Paul speaks of here, it's the longed for return of Jesus. The day when he will establish his reign forever. And on that day, he will raise the dead and transform the living who put their hope in him. Paul explains why this transformation must take place, returning to what he's already said in verse 50. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So you would never turn up to a formal wedding 
in a t-shirt and cut off jeans. Similarly, you would never dream of entering life, eternal life, in a body that could age and die. Jesus won't let you. When he raises you, he will transform you. And if you happen to be among those who are living when that last trumpet sounds, he will take your body there and then and transform it in the blink of an eye. So Paul continues in verse 54 to talk about that moment, that moment of resurrection and transformation. This is what he says. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, at that moment, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? At that moment, we will experience victory over the one thing that we cannot escape, and that is our mortality. Paul is quoting here from two Old Testament prophecies, one of which Claudia read to us just a few moments ago in Isaiah 25. And in that prophecy, this day of the Lord's coming, it's described as a feast on a mountaintop. A feast unlike any that the world has ever seen where God himself sits down with humankind and says, let's eat and let's drink together. Now I wonder if you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus shares the wine with his disciples, he tells them that he's not going to touch another drop until the coming of the kingdom. Well, this is the day when he'll feast again, when he'll drink again. That picture from Isaiah 25, that is the feast that he's waiting for. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus is waiting, he's aging the wine, and he is eagerly anticipating a feast with us. I don't understand why he would want to feast and spend eternity with me, or frankly with you, but he does. It's a feast to celebrate the death of death and the start of life eternal. A feast where we will join him in brand new deathless bodies. Is it any wonder that Paul, in his excitement about this coming day, mocks death? Well, having done this, he draws his thoughts to a close in verses 56 to 57, pulling us back into the present moment, almost as if to prevent our imaginations from running away with us. He writes in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that death doesn't stand alone. Death is a result of the poison of sin, which under the power of God's law leads to the grave. Even after his joy-filled taunting, Paul reminds us that death is our enemy. It's ugly. Though we live in joyful hope and eager expectation of resurrection life, we still face death. We are still very much mortal creatures. 
And it's here that I want to just take a step back and ask a broader question, which is this. If what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is true, if we who trust in Jesus for our salvation will one day receive new bodies and new life, well, how then should we think about death? So we live in a world of mixed messages when it comes to death. On the one hand, we're told that it's entirely natural and there's nothing to worry about. In fact, some, some would say that when life loses its quality, when it stops being good and fun, we should feel free to end it. It's no big deal. It's just death. On the other hand, though, we fight it. We fight it, we fear it, we flee from it. When someone's terminally ill, the normal practice in our society is to hide them away in a hospital or a hospice facility. Partly because there they're going to receive the best care they can, but it's partly because we don't want death in our homes. We don't want to look at the dying. We don't want to be seen by others when we are dying. There's this profound sense in which we are ashamed by our mortality. Death is the great guaranteed unknown, and we as a society, we don't seem to know what to do with it. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics at Princeton, and he's one of the world's foremost proponents of abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia. Since the 1970s, Singer has been the intellectual heavyweight behind various movements around the world to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide, as it's called. And the logic of his position is rooted in the belief that some lives just aren't worth living. Those with disabilities, chronic pain, or dementia. And when a life isn't worth living, he argues, well, we should just have the option of ending it. When Singer's mother, Cora, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the 1990s, he was faced with a challenge. Instead of finding a way to end her life quietly, he paid for long-term private nursing care as she descended ever more deeply into dementia. And when he was challenged by others at this blatant inconsistency, he could only reply, perhaps it's more difficult than I thought before because it's different when it's your mother. He didn't change his position on euthanasia. He simply decided to live with the inconsistency. Now, Singer is not the only one who is inconsistent in his attitudes towards death. Is it a friend or is it a foe? Natural end or unavoidable evil? Now, I want you to notice two things in our text. First, though it's not his emphasis in this passage, Paul can't help but remind us that death is our enemy. So when he gloats that death is swallowed up in victory, it's a reference to battle. Death is our enemy. Death is a poison. God created us for eternity, but in our sin we embraced mortality, succumbed to decay, and surrendered to the enemy. That's what he is reminding us of ever so briefly in verse 56. And for this reason... For this reason, we are right to hate death, to resist it, to fight it off as long as we have breath in our lungs. 
Death is alien to the lives for which we were created. It's cruel. We are right to grieve it. And we are right to mourn when our loved ones die because this is not the way things are supposed to be. Now, Peter Singer knew this instinctively when it came to his own mother. His actions were louder than his words. Second thing I want you to notice in the text, however, is the primary point of Paul's argument, which is this. Death has been defeated by our Lord Jesus. And for this reason, we need not fear it. We don't have to hide from it. When death comes, we can surrender to it knowing that it does not get the final word. So we need not dread it. We need not fear it. Death's power over us is awful, but it's not permanent because Jesus conquered it. So all of those mixed emotions that we experience when a loved one is dying, they are a result, a response to this dual reality about death. You will grieve. You will shed bitter tears. But if that loved one trusts in Jesus, you will let them go with hope and with peace. Understanding that death is a severe mercy and a prelude to resurrection. I've got one last thought before we turn to the final verse and our conclusion. So I wonder if you've noticed in this chapter, as long and as detailed as it is, that Paul never addresses the question that most people ask about death, which is, what's going to happen to me when I die? Right? It's, a, it's incredible. Paul talks about dying, and he talks about being raised from the dead, but the time in between gets almost no attention in this chapter. So I mentioned earlier that three times Paul refers to the dead as being asleep. It's a metaphor that he doesn't explain or expand on. And it's, now it's possible that he had taught the Corinthians all about this in the past, and he doesn't feel like repeating himself here. But I doubt it, because elsewhere in his letters, Paul, he shows little interest in the question, what happens when we die? That's really irritating for most of us. We want to know what's going to happen at that moment when we cross from death to life. But you know, it's, it's not just Paul who stays relatively quiet about this. The rest of the Bible is mostly silent on this as well. Now, there are, of course, hints. On the cross, Jesus promises the thief next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, implying that even in death, he will be with Jesus in his presence. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is joined by Elijah and Moses who clearly enjoy some kind of ongoing existence in the heavenly realm in spite of not yet being raised from the dead. John's vision of the throne room of heaven in the early chapters of Revelation, it includes a picture of those who have died in Christ giving him praise prior to the resurrection of the dead. Paul himself speaks of being with Christ after his death. 
So in Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks of his longing to leave this broken, sinful life behind and to be with Christ after his death. These are glimpses and they're glimmers. They affirm that between death and resurrection, we rest in the presence of Christ, free from sin, sorrow, or pain. But it's unclear how we are with him. So Paul is uncharacteristic uncharacteristically quiet. When it comes to explaining something he doesn't understand and that God has not yet fully revealed to him, he chooses not to speculate. And here's the incredible thing about this. It doesn't seem to bother him, this not knowing. And I don't think it should bother us. So what happens when we die? I'm not sure. All I know is that God's promise to Jeremiah stands firm in life and in death. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whether we are alive or dead, we are with Christ. We are in his care. We are gloriously at rest. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, he wrote a lengthy reflection on the rest that we will enjoy with Christ after death. After death and it's called the saint's everlasting rest. In it, he says the following. He says, this rest contains a perfect freedom from all the evils that accompanied us through our course in this world, for nothing enters heaven that defiles or is unclean. Doubtless, there's no such thing as grief and sorrow there, nor is there such a thing as a pale face, feeble joints, languishing sickness, groaning fears, consuming cares, or whatever deserves the name of evil. A gale of groans and a stream of tears will accompany us to the very gates and there they will bid us farewell forever. Our sorrow will be turned into joy and no one will take our joy from us. Now we don't know much about what happens in that time between death and resurrection, but we do know this, there's nothing to fear, joy and rest await us in the presence of Christ. Now I want to encourage you as a result of this. I want to encourage you to approach what we don't know about the other side of death with quiet awe instead of lighthearted speculation. So it can be reassuring for us to talk about what a loved one must be doing in heaven right now, playing golf with Aunt Jean or surfing those heavenly waves. But the Bible doesn't do this. It never speculates. It simply trusts. There's calm confidence in God's everlasting provision and then the Bible's quiet. And I think that's a pretty good model for us. So scripture may be relatively quiet about exactly what happens when we die, but when it comes to the resurrection of the dead and the new life we are promised on a redeemed earth, the Bible is outspoken. And it all comes to a climax at the end of the book of Revelation with a vision of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where where God will dwell with us forever. So there's one last verse in this chapter for us to consider, and it's verse 58. Paul writes, at the end of it all, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. 
Because of this hope that we have, this certainty that Jesus will return and raise us to new life with him, we stand strong in the face of our mortality. Paul uses two words side by side to to emphasize the, the strength of our rootedness in this hope. And one of them occurs only here in the New Testament, nowhere else. And it means to be unflinching, unwavering, not moving even an inch. We are to be steadfast and immovable because we are rooted in hope. And from that place of hope, we are to abound in good work. Now, what kind of work Paul's referring to here is it's not clear. I think he means to say that when you are rooted in the hope of resurrection, it is only natural to do everything abounding in joy and goodness and grace. This last verse of the chapter, it takes us all the way back to the first verse of the chapter. Paul began by saying, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Our faith It all begins and it all ends with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his promise to us that when we put our trust in him, we will join him there one day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise of your return, for the hope we have of resurrection, for the promise of new bodies. We thank you that Though the details are unclear, we know you will care for us at the moment of our deaths. That you will sustain us in your presence, free from all sin and suffering. And that you will hold us for the day of resurrection. May we learn to be steadfast, immovable, unflinching, unwavering in our hope. And so abound in good works for the glory of your name. Amen.